Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Have you ever stopped to consider the ways that you try to prove yourself daily? You may feel this at school, where the, where the focus is super high on your grades, the level of your classes, the classes you take, or the clubs that you're in, because you really need to stand out to get that college acceptance, internship, or job. You feel the need to prove yourself. Or you may feel this when you want to make that team and start feeling pressure, when all of a sudden your shot's off, or your touch isn't great, and you start pressing, 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 and you need to prove yourself, but the pressure gets more and more. I saw this uh, this summer at a soccer tryout. It was really sad to see this 10 or 11-year-old, I don't, I don't know how old the kid was, but he began to slump his shoulders and shrink back as a tryout went on. And it got to the point where he was protecting himself from failure, not by, engaging in the play, by not engaging in the play. So instead of going to, to the ball, he was stepping away. And no one was saying anything negative to him. But you could notice this change in his posture, in his aggressiveness, and in his play. And he felt the need to prove himself. If he could verbalize that, he would say, I feel the need to prove myself and I'm not performing well. And the pressure grew and grew and grew until he was a shell of himself. He was trying to prove himself but knew it wasn't working. And parents, you may feel this. Uh, sometimes maybe you're at a store and your child is trying to shoplift the candy or toy that you said you wouldn't buy. I'm not naming any names here, but like that could happen, right? And everyone else around you sees this mutinous uprising, and you can't do anything about it. Or maybe you have an exhausted two-year-old who's flipping out for no good reason, and it is even close to being your fault. But somehow, you feel the need to prove yourself to parents around you who are strangers, but we feel this need. Employees, you may feel this at work, right? When your output or sales or contributions aren't, are compared to others, you want so badly for your name to be at the top of the page, for your work to stand up really well. And not only do you want to do a good job, but you also want others to know how valuable you are. You feel the need to prove yourself. Maybe some of us feel it here today, right? And not just because there's a chili competition. I realize the irony of the whole thing. <laughs> I realize it. It's Sunday morning, though, and we're at church. And so we look around, and we think that everyone else has it together. So I need to put a smile on, right? I need to act like everything is okay and prove myself. Which, by the way, nothing could be more in, untrue. No one here has it together. And if if we're in our best and most honest and most holy moments, we're actually all just hanging on for dear, dear life and banking on Jesus to put us back together. So once I start saying all these things, I realize, and hopefully you do too, how sad all this is. We feel this pressure to be someone we aren't, someone that none of us can be, and we end up never resting. Or we end up lying. Or we end up dogging on other people or we end up self-protecting, or we end up acting, all to prove ourselves, and not only is it sad, 
It's exhausting and unending and unfulfilling. And it's just not worth it. And we do that to ourselves. But it's not just with other people that we do that with. If we're being honest, we do the same things with God, right? If it's impossible to prove ourselves to other people, think for a moment about the pressure of trying to prove ourselves to a good, right, and perfect God. Or the wildness of the ways that we try to convince him that we are worthy of saving, right? That we try to convince him that we are worthy of his grace. Have you slowed down to think this through? Have you considered how you might try to convince God that you're worth his saving? What kind of bargains do you make? Is it about reading your Bible? Is it about spending some time in prayer? Is it about we're here on Sunday mornings? Is it that you're part of a gospel community? Is it you're a a good person? Have no idea what that means. 40-something years old, have no idea what good person means. But here's the thing. God is for all of those things. But he's not for all of those things so that we can prove ourselves to him. He's for all those things because they're good for us, but they are only good good for us to the extent that we realize that God is gracious. So we don't have to prove ourselves. If you will, open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel 7. And we're going to look at a story from King David's life. And as we do, we're going to see David in a somewhat similar circumstance. It's 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 3. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So if you'll remember with me, David started as a shepherd boy. But by the time we get here to 2 Samuel 7, which by the way, this is backing up from the story we were in last week. So we're back a little bit. But by the time we get here to 2 Samuel 7, David is a king. You can see it here. He's not a king waiting to grow up to be a real king. He's not a king living in a tent. David is a king who has made it and has things in order, including the fact that his enemies are not even messing with him anymore. You can read that in here. And and the the writer of 2 Samuel wants us to understand this, and because, because he wants us to understand this, he says that David is a real king in a real palace that no one's messing with. So that we get that he calls him king three times in in this paragraph. If you see that, he says it three times. David is not even used until verse five of this story because the writer wants us to understand David is a real king. And because he is now the king, David wants to do the thing that kings do. One of these things is to build a temple for his God. See, for a king of his stature, there was a cultural expectation that he would build this temple for God. It's kind of like when somebody gets crazy rich and they have so much money that all of a sudden they have to buy a professional sports team. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you have no business owning a professional sports team. You don't know anything, but you got money, so you're going to do it. They have to do it because it shows that you got it. Well, building a temple for God would signify who David is to other people around him. You guys see what I mean by that? Building this temple would be a way David 
proves himself. But building God a temple would also provide a way for David to prove himself to God. See, at the moment, God is living in a tent while David is in a palace. David sees his fine dwelling. He looks around. He's like, I got this. This place is great. He's living in this fine dwelling. And then the tent that God is dwelling in, he sees. And David's got this spare time on his hands, and he wants to fix this situation. So he's going to build God a house, a real house. He wants to build God a house of cedar. Assuming God has no allergies, but he's going with the house of cedar. It's going to be splashy and nice. The neighbors will ride by and see, see that David has built God this house. And for other cultures, building a nice home for God and receiving God's blessing would be the norm. It was a cultural expectation amongst kings, as we said. And they wanted to do that to build, uh, build temples for their gods because it was very transactional with them and their little G gods. There was a deal almost. I build you a house and you keep on blessing me. You guys see it? That's the deal. That's the deal. So in this context, building this temple for God would be a way way for David to prove himself to other people, but also to God. But David isn't considering that the way he's trying to prove himself and to God, is, is not how the true God works. See, if God wants a house, God will be the one to name when. God will be the one to, to pinpoint where. God will name what he wants his home to be. God doesn't need a house to dwell in. And if he does, it's going to be a symbol of his presence among his people. Not a symbol of his affection being bought or earned. Let's go on. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So that night, there's this word of the Lord that comes from Nathan. And this phrase in the Bible means, this is a message that God is communicating through a prophet. And in this case, God is speaking to David through Nathan, who's a trusted advisor. So, and notice here that David is now called a servant in verse 5. You guys remember in the first three verses, he, David was called the king. Remember that? So now that God is talking, it's no longer the king lived, this, the king said, Nathan said to the king, but now that God is talking, David's title is my servant. My servant. See, the king may have some swagger with people, but not with God. Not with God. So God speaks through Nathan And basically says, this is my paraphrase, he says, would you build me a house? Really, you would do that? Because I have not lived in a house for generations, for hundreds of years. I've not been doing that. I'm the one who brought the people of Israel up out of Egypt, who rescued them from the the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, 
David, you might remember that. Sorry, not David. My servant, you might remember that because I split the seas to free them. I split the seas. And you're right, David, very observant. I haven't been living in a house. Instead, I've been moving around in a tent for my dwelling because I want to be with my people. Because I want to be with my people. And I've gone with my people all this time. And have you ever heard that I ask somebody to build me a house? David, my servant, have you ever heard someone say that I ask, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Because see, like he's, he's speaking with David and saying, like, I've done all of this and I've chosen to do that. And he goes on in verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from my enemies, from all your enemies. See, God is reminding David from where he came from. More specifically, God reminds David of where God has brought him from. He was a shepherd following sheep in a field. But now he's leading God's people. God has been with David in battle after battle. And in those battles, God has given David victory. And the very palace that David sits in at this moment is given him by God. But God isn't only telling David, I've moved in your past. He's telling David how he's going to move in the future. He's telling him how he's going to move in the future. God will make David a great name, he says. Such that we're even talking about him in Melrose, Massachusetts in 2022. See, God will appoint a place for his people and plant them there so that they have their place and no one will bother them. God is going to give his people rest from their enemies. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God's saying that he's going to make a house for David that will not end when David does. God promises David that he will establish a kingdom for his son that will go on forever. Forever. 
and that it will be David's son who builds God a temple. Even more, God promises to be a father to David's son, a good dad who disciplines his son and will never stop loving him. And all of this is what means David's kingdom will be established forever. And this is a stunning turn of events that we can't miss because this story all began with what? David looking to prove himself to others and to God by building God a temple. David thought he was the one bringing something to the table. He thought he was the one bringing something to the table. Yet God reminds David how all this started. He reminds David that it was God who established him and his people, not the other way around. God points out that David is trying to do favors for God that God did not ask for and doesn't have a need for. David doesn't need to build a temple because God has already given him all of God's affection. He has all of God's blessings, all of them. He has all of God's forgiveness. He has all of God's grace for him. But God doesn't stop there. He also promises David that the kingdom he has given him will go on to his son and last forever. Even when he dies and even when David can no longer be a father to his son, God will be a father to his son and father him with unending steadfast love. Do you see how he's surpassing every expectation that David could possibly have, every hope that David could possibly have? God is surpassing. David sets out to prove himself to God, but God is gracious. God doesn't need David to prove himself. God is not looking for David to prove himself, which is so good because David could not pull it off anyway. And nor any of us. God is so gracious that he blesses David in profound, intense, and comprehensive ways that David could not imagine. God blesses David in such fantastic ways that David did not have the earthly capacity to fully understand or experience. Like he literally cannot, he can't do it. He can't live long enough to experience in his flesh the things that God's promising to him. And God not only doesn't expect David to prove himself, he just blesses him. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. In the last few minutes of our time, I want to look at Psalm 103. As we've been doing in this series, we're looking at a story from David's life and then a psalm. Because I think Psalm 103 is going to help us understand some of what we just read in 2 Samuel 7. So if you will flip over there, we're going to put it up here too. But Psalm 103, the Psalm of David, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David's beginning this psalm by commanding his soul to bless God's holy name. He's considering what God has done and is doing, and as he does, David realizes it's not enough for his soul to praise God. David commands all that is in him to bless God's name, everything he's got. It's going to take not only his soul, but all his lungs, and all his heart, and all his mind, and David's going to need everything he has to bless God rightfully. And so he's saying, let's don't forget soul. Don't forget all the benefits 
of God. Don't forget all that God's done. And he starts listing some out in Psalm 103, verse 3 through 5. He says to his soul, do not forget God and his benefits. God forgives all of your iniquity. Important word there, all. All your iniquity. God forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He doesn't redeem your life when things are good. He doesn't redeem your life when you think you might have some stuff figured out. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed. This is our God. This is our God, son of my room. He is gracious, so very gracious. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. If you look closely, there's nothing in there where God requires performance from us. He doesn't require perfection from us or proving from us. This is just who God is. God is gracious. God never tells David to muscle up. He never tells David to earn his love. He never tells David to earn his mercy. He never tells David to earn his forgiveness. God never tells David to look better, sound more intelligent, or win his affection with flattery or good behavior. He doesn't do it. God forgives all our iniquity, David says. And not because David was great. David was a shepherd in a field, and God made him a king. God redeems your life and my life from a pit. And this may be controversial, but a pit doesn't sound great. It just doesn't. If you Google it, the reviews on the pit, not great. One star. That doesn't sound like someone who had good things going on. Somebody in the pit doesn't seem like someone who has life figured out, who has a lot to offer God. The pit sounds terrible. You know? It sounds like like a pit. It sounds like Everything is falling apart. Like it was dangerous and trending towards death. It doesn't sound like things were in a place where the person in the pit is proving themselves as worthy of God's blessing. Yet this is David's God. He redeems us when we're at our worst and at our most helpless. And he made a way to bring us into his family and crown us with steadfast love and mercy. Not because we're good, but because he is. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Our Lord does nothing by halves. He will not stay his hand till he has gone to the uttermost with his people. Cleansing, healing, redemption are not enough. He must needs make them kings and crown them. And the crown must be far more precious than if it were made of corruptible things, such as silver 
and gold. It is studded with gems of grace and lined with the velvet of loving kindness. It is decked with the jewels of mercy, but made soft for the head to wear by the lining of tenderness. God doesn't go halfway with you and I in anything. He cleans fully. He heals fully. He redeems fully. He blesses fully because that is who he is. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. Let that good news sink in this morning. Breathe it deep, this good news that you don't have to prove yourself to God. Because one of the things we've been praying for this whole series is that we would find freedom in who God is. I mean, we, like, like, we put it on the poster, right? Like, that means it was important to us, right? We put it there. I've been praying that the Spirit would help us see where we don't think rightly about God. And this week, I've been praying that we'd see our error in thinking that God needs something from us or that he's waiting for us to impress him or that we have to look good enough for him to accept us. I've been praying about this. I've been praying that we we would see our wrong thinking about who God is and we would repent because we tell lies about who God is and we squeeze joy from our lives when we do it and we don't mean to do it. We don't mean to, but we do it anyway. So, So think with me for just a moment about what it means that God is gracious So you don't have to prove yourself. Because you don't have to prove yourself anymore. For God or for anyone. Jesus has done that for you. His perfect life is yours by faith. So God has approved you. You've been counted righteous in him. You've been counted righteous in him. Everything that God called you to do but you haven't done, Jesus has done that for you. Real obedience in real flesh in this real world for you and for me. And nothing can change that. So we don't have to fake it or lie or downplay sin anymore. We don't have to. Everything God has told you not to do but you did anyway Jesus bled and died for. Real blood spilled for you. Real flesh crushed for you and for me. There's no penalty due us for our sins. Jesus has taken care of that. We're free to love God and love others as one who's been set free. Set free. Christ lived the perfect life and died the perfect death for you and me to be counted righteous. And it's finished. Finished. There's no more to do to earn God's favor. Nothing. There's no more proving to be done. There's no more striving. It's finished. You're free and I'm free. We're free. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's God's grace to broken people like you and I. 
God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. There's no amount of Bible reading, praying, singing, feeding the hungry, being a good neighbor, hiding your, your sin, shoveling snow, coaching youth sports. None of that that can make you more approved by God than you already are in Christ Jesus. He secured God's approval for you. And all the blessings wrapped up in that. We're God's own. And nothing can change that because God's own son bled and died. There's nothing else to earn. But there's so much to glory in. To delight in. And to enjoy in our God. We could not have a brighter future than we have in Christ. You cannot have a brighter future. So now we're free. We're free to love him and serve him and his people and our neighbor, not because we have to satisfy him or earn his blessing, but because we already have his approval and nothing can change it. So have to gets changed to get to. Have to gets changed to get to. We get to worship God with his people on Sunday mornings. You don't have to do that to earn his favor. You get to. You get to forgive other people because he's forgiven you. You're free. You don't have to do that to earn his favor. You get to confess your sin freely without fear of others because God has already forgiven you. You get to be you without fear. Imagine what it would be like to live a life knowing that God is so gracious that you don't have to prove yourself. Imagine that. Imagine what it would be like to be a church full of people believing that God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves to one another. And imagine what a blessing that would be to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our city. Please tell me who doesn't want to hang out with people that that are going, you don't need to impress me. So maybe this week as you're gathering with your gospel community, a cool thing would be to just dream for a minute. Like what would it be like if we really believe that God is so gracious we don't have to prove ourselves? Like what would it really look like? And how can we live that out? Because I'm telling you, it's a game changer for all of us. So much so that Christ went and purchased it. So Seven Mile Road, God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. Let's find freedom in who God is together. Would you pray with me?